Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today's episode, we'll be talking about Homer, uh, the poet Homer, and his description of the color of the ocean as wine dark, the wine dark sea. Homer writes in the Iliad and the Odyssey, I think maybe 12 different times uh, between the two books, he refers to the color of the sea as wine dark. And so the question has been, why did he use that term? As wine, of course, is red and burgundy colors. So in today's podcast, I thought I'd run through some of the thinking on this. Actually, I think that the ocean at the time of Homer could have appeared as wine dark. And so I'll walk through how that could be. One theory is that at the time Homer lived, which I found a pretty broad range for when it's speculated that he lived between the 12th and 8th century BCE, so that's quite a span. But, um, you know, it's speculated that um, humans at the time may not have, like, perceived or, like, distinguished uh, from other hues the color of blue and that they that the color blue would be associated with like a green or a violet and not seen as a as a true hue now one of the thoughts on that is that there's um evidence that i've i've encountered about the origins of languages and and i'll have to do some more on this this is kind of an evolving kind of thing for me of understanding this evidently the way languages have evolved over time, uh, the word, the names for colors come into languages at different times, and there's some similarities which are kind of interesting. That that there's words for colors like white and black, and then red, pretty early on in languages, and then the next color to enter into language is generally green, and then yellow they kind of swap in different languages. So it it can be red, white, black, red, green is next, or maybe yellow. But if, but if yellow is the next one, then green is the next one after that. And then at the end is blue. And so there's like thoughts, the word blue doesn't appear in the Bible in the old Testament. And so then there's like a theory, the Sapphire wharf hypothesis, which I don't know if I buy it, but that if a if a language doesn't have a, a term for something, then that those people can't see it. So it's speculated if the Greek language didn't have a word for the color blue, then the people wouldn't be able to see the color blue. I've I've read a lot that discredits that, but it is kind of interesting to think about in terms of like if that is true, then there are colors all around me right now 
that I cannot see because I don't have a word for them. So like the shirt that I'm wearing, it's gray to me, but it might be like some super fantastic color that I'm totally oblivious to because we don't have a word for it in the English language. So that, I, I kind of like that. But anyway, the one thing, though, that I have encountered is in terms of, I've talked about uh, trichromatic color vision in previous episodes, and so that refers to the three light-sensitive type uh, cones in our eyes that, that are mainly sensitive to blues, reds, and greens uh, light waves. And that's how we see all colors. And so that blue, the blue wavelengths are called short wavelengths. So a wavelength of light, the reason they call it short is that it's a wave. And so at the peaks of the wave where they come up, they measure the distance between the peaks. And if it's a short distance, then it's short. And then as you go through the spectrum from violet is the shortest and then blues and it it opens up as you get into the greens and then it's wider as you get into red. And um, so they're referred to as the long wavelengths. And then also within the electromagnetic energy, the visible spectrum is just a small little sliver of these wavelengths. There's many more like infrared and the radio waves, uh, microwaves. So yeah, maybe a way to visualize these waves and the size of them is like, if you think of your microwave, my microwave has like a door and I can see through and there's like this grid, this metal kind of grid of little holes. So I can look in to see the food cooking and stuff like that. And those holes are just the right size that the microwave wavelengths are too big to fit through those little holes. So they can't come out and cook me while I'm standing there cooking my food. So as we get into the lower range of the wavelengths, that's where blue is found and, and violet. And there, it's, it's speculated, too, that the violet wavelengths, and it kind of makes sense, like the next one, the shorter after violet is ultraviolet, and most humans cannot see ultraviolet. However, there are people who do have what's called tetrachromatic vision, which includes a fourth cone that is sensitive to those lower wavelengths. And it's even thought that early humans may have been nocturnal because it could have been that all humans at one point had tetrachromatic vision with the fourth cone, and they could see in the dark. They could see ultraviolet. And so violet is interesting because as it goes, as the wavelengths are getting closer and closer together, they're violet, 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 and then it turns to ultraviolet. We can't see the wavelengths. So to me, that means that there's parts or maybe a big portion of the violet range that we cannot perceive because the wavelengths are at one point too close together for our for them to impact and have an effect on on our light sensitive cells on our retina. So now going back to that idea of tetrachromatic vision, could it be that the Greeks at the time, 12th to 8th centuries BCE, so like, you know, thousands of years ago, could the Greeks had had tetrachromatic vision or maybe Homer himself. And so, you know, given 
how many generations that would be that it, that those cones could be lost and you know evolved out of human uh, color vision although there are people who do have it still today and there's a way for t to test for it um, I'll have to look that up and maybe put it on the website or something so now going back to it so if Homer the old guy had that fourth cone cell and he could see into the ultraviolet range and he could see really see violet he may have seen the sky as violet the sky is blue because light wavelengths coming from the sun are what's called scattered as they hit the Earth's atmosphere. And scattering takes place in a couple of different ways. There's a couple of different theories on this. The one is called Rayleigh scattering, and that, that's what's responsible for making the sky look blue. And Rayleigh scattering occurs when light hits particles that are smaller or about the same size as the wavelength. So like oxygen molecules or carbon, CO2 or whatever, stuff like that. So you're thinking about the molecules of the atmosphere. Ozone refracts or scatters blue intensely, actually. Actually, at night, the next time it's a clear sunset or something, you'll see all the clouds and stuff are pink and orange and whatever from the setting sun if you look up the sky should be this like really deep blue almost black and that's the ozone layer that you're seeing and so then there's something called me scattering me and that occurs when light is scattered by particles that are similar in size to the wavelength or maybe a little bigger or something so like something like smog and like dust particles in the air cause me scattering and so that scatters out different wavelengths more like yellows if you think of like smog like this yellow green and then there's another one it doesn't have as fancy of a name it's called non-selective scattering <laughs> um, let's see here so that occurs when the light wavelengths um, are hitting particles that are larger than than the wavelengths when and so something like uh, clouds and fog, so like water droplets are much bigger than the wavelengths. Going back to this Rayleigh scattering, evidently there are many, many, many more violet wavelengths scattered by the oxygen and the molecules of the atmosphere than there are blue wavelengths scattered. So our perception if you have if you have trichromatic vision it is very weak at detecting violet it's it's much stronger at picking up the the blues and actually blue is you know i'll have to do this will be another podcast but there are much fewer blue cone cells on our retinas than there are uh, green and red cone cells and in the center of the retinas is an area called the fovea in there, the red and green cone cells are much more concentrated, and the blue cells are just kind of peppered a little bit. And then the very center, which is called the foveola, there are no blue cone cells. So the, the area of our color vision that is the most precise and the most acute, there's no blue being picked up there. And the blues, I believe only about 10% of the cones are accounted for blues of the five or six million cones in each eye 
they're scattered more around the perimeter or the periphery of the retina in and amongst the rod cells, which we haven't really talked about. But rod cells are responsible for vision in low light, like at nighttime, like moonlight. Back to our sky, which at the time of Homer, I would argue, it could have been perceived as violet. And if the, so if the sky was violet, or like even purple, and the ocean could reasonably look like a dark burgundy, like a nice, you know, pinot or something. I've been on the beach before where you see this bright blue sky and it's beautiful and everything like that. And the ocean has got this like really cold, steely, it's quite a bit darker. It's quite a bit, it's reflecting the, you know, the surface of the, of the sky. Now there is, there's a hole in this argument to a certain extent, because there's something called color dissolved organic matter, C-D-O-M. And it, it accounts for the organic matter that's dissolved in the water that scatters light and reflects light and does all of these different things similar to the, to the sky and how it's scattering light, all of the various particles. There are particles in the ocean that, that essentially act to do the same thing. So that does account for the color of the ocean being blue. And you can notice this like much more if you're looking through a vast amount of water, like a really deep, like we were snorkeling off the Great Barrier Reef and we were on one of those kind of almost like continental shelf like looking things, like looking down into the abyss. And uh, it was the deepest blue I've ever seen in my life. But at the same time, we were in the Caribbean once. I swear the water was violet, almost purple, almost like a reddish violet. I mean, it was not blue. I even called my wife over and I was like, look at that. That is not blue. And she was like totally agreed. It was shocking. And so if the sky was violet or even purple like a, or like a dark violet, and if the color of the of the ocean wasn't blue reflecting the sky, would it have occurred to anybody to call the ocean blue? Because where else does blue really appear naturally in the environment? It's, it's not a very uh, common color to encounter if you take out the sky and the color of water. Like there are certain stones and minerals that are blue, certainly. There are some flowers we've got. You know, blue morning glories, those are kind of like the ones I like the most, but they're kind of, they're very rare, actually. So there's not a ton of things out there that are just naturally blue. So yeah, I, I think the color of the ocean reasonably could have been a dark burgundy. And if I was there, I'd be like, hey, Homer, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere. Why don't you pour me a glass of that ocean and we'll have a toast to your success with your two great books. Uh, they're... Well, you don't know it, but they're a hit. (laughs) Enough of that. So that concludes our podcast today, a little bit of a shorter one. If you're interested in more about this, there's quite a bit written on it, and there's a really great article in the New York Times called Homer C. Wine Dark? By John Noble Wilford from December 20th, uh, 1983. So check that out if you're interested. And yes, so today we covered a few topics, trichromatic vision, tetrachromatic vision, could humans see in the dark in the old, old, olden days, color of the sky, 
Mies van der or <laughs> Mies van der Rohe scattering, Mies Mies scattering, Rayleigh scattering. Another thing maybe to take a look at, and we'll do a show on this, is called the Purkinje effect. So the next time you're sitting outside and it's uh, getting dark out, pay attention to how the blues and greens in the landscape stay vivid much longer as into the lowering of the light and that the yellows, oranges, and reds diminish rather quickly. And how uh, sometimes you can even see like something that's turn that that's red will appear as black, while the blues and greens around it, the greens, the blue greens, are are still relatively vibrant and chromatic. That's called the Purkinje effect, and we'll talk about that in terms of how that might have had an impact on why Mary and Christian art was commonly shown wearing a, a blue robe. That's a teaser. So thank you, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.